Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. Well, once again, we are in Psalm 119. Before we get to that, though, I want to say this. Today in the in-person gathering, we are honoring Scott Palmer and then, of course, his family, Carrie and Elijah and Kayla. Uh, Scott has been an elder here at Discovery for the past four plus years. I think it's a little bit over a four-year term. Um, he's led Discovery through uh, some pretty tremendous uh, transitions, some big ups and some big downs, a global pandemic, a whole bunch of other things, pastoral transition, all of that stuff, and has just been a, a, a rock. Uh, the Palmers have been such a, a important foundational uh, piece of the Discovery family for you know many years before that, but certainly during this time of eldership and leadership. Um, and sacrifice and service, and I could go on and on. Uh, I've said this about a few people, but this is very much true of Scott and his family. If it were not for them, there may not be a Discovery Christian Church here today. So uh, if you are unable to make it to the in-person gathering, I want uh, just to give you a chance to be able to, at some point, say thank you to Scott and Carrie and their kids for the ways in which, again, they've sacrificed and served uh, our church over the last four plus years. All right, I want to take a moment and pray for them and then pray for our time in Scripture today as we wrap up this conversation, what we talk about when we talk about the Bible. Would you pray with me? Father, we do. We just uh, extend our hands sort of uh, uh, metaphorically and literally towards the Palmers. We thank you for uh, their faithfulness for their service, for Scott's leadership, for his consistency, and for his presence, their whole family's presence during some pivotal moments in the life of this church. Transition, crisis, pandemics, they've been here, they've shown up, and they've stayed in it, and it is a good gift, God. Their, their witness and their, their presence is such a good gift to our family, our church. So, God, we pray for them now, especially for Scott, as he moves into a season of, of sabbatical, of rest, God, that you would meet him there, that you would rejuvenate his soul, that um, he would be reminded of his first love, that it would be, that rest period would be good and life-giving, not just for him, but for his family. Um, and then, God, would you help them to just sort of navigate post-eldership um, and, and, and continue to uh, use them to build others up, to help people discover the good news of Jesus, to disciple, mentor uh, others in our community. And may they have people in their life who, who speak life into them as well. We pray all of this for the Palmers in Jesus' name. And then for us, God, now we pray that you would speak to us through your word as we continue to meditate, as Scripture says, on your word. Would you teach us new things? Would you show us new things? And would you challenge us this morning? We pray this. In the powerful name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Okay, Psalm 119. We've, we've been sort of in and around this psalm a lot over the last three weeks as we've uh, been having this conversation about 
scripture. I just want to read a little bit more from it. Psalm 119, the longest of all the Psalms. It's this ode to scripture. Of course, it's written about what was called the Torah or the law, the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But it's bigger than that, right? When you read through Psalm 119, you get the sense of like, no, this is about all of it. So just a couple of things, a couple of verses as we uh, come in for a landing here. How sweet, this is verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Remember week one, the different stories that we talked about. And then again, this anchor verse for us. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So as we conclude, what we talk about when we talk about the Bible, so far we've looked at why we read. Remember week one, the practice of reading scripture. We read to be formed, not just to be informed, right? Information is good. Research is good. Digging in, like hardcore studying, that's great. We are all for that. But underneath all of that, the foundational reason why we read scripture is to be formed into God's story for the adventure of following Jesus. And then last week we looked at what is the Bible? Like what is this thing, this book that we have in front of us? We saw that it's God's words, his personal revelation of himself to us. It's his story that our stories are caught up in. Now, today we're going to talk about the how. And out of the three, this is probably the most boring one. I'm going to try to make it as interesting and engaging as possible. But the how of reading scripture is so important. So important because these words that are sweeter than honey, that illuminate our path, that show us the good way, that tell the story of God, these words, they are not always easy to understand. Are you with me? Now, last week we said the Bible is this collection. It's actually a library of 66 different books, books that were written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 plus different authors in three languages, three languages, by people who lived in vastly different cultural contexts than ours, and they used a wide range of literary genres. There's this this great complexity and mystery to Scripture. And while we don't believe or teach that you have to be an expert or a scholar or that you have to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible, the reality is the Bible is tricky. Okay, Because of that complexity and that mystery, the Bible is tricky. Tricky, and we, I think, do people a disservice when we, when we don't name that truth. For example, in our reading of Scripture, we may come along something like this. When anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin that may be defiling skin, uh, that may be a defiling skin disease, they must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. When the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them ceremonially unclean. If the shiny spot on the skin is white but does not appear to be more than skin deep and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days. Leviticus 13. Probably memorize that in Sunday school. <laughs> Um, you know, what is that all about? Why are there passages about skin diseases and white hairs and all of this kind of stuff? Now, sometimes we think, oh, all the weird bits, all the tricky bits are in the Old Testament. The New Testament, though, is puppies and rainbows and love and Jesus, right? Acts chapter 5, this should be familiar to us. We looked at it not too long ago in our Ecclesia conversation. Now, a man, <clears throat> a man named Ananias, 
together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And then I love the next part. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Because, yeah, like people are dropping down dead. <laughs> okay, so that's a crazy story. Or what about something like this? Isaiah 34, 7. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. That's the King James Version. But yes, it said unicorns. Did you know that unicorns show up at least nine or ten times in the Bible. And then what about this? There's the bits that directly contradict each other. My favorite example is Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Now, how many of us have to deal with fools? Okay, so here's some great advice. Don't answer a fool. You'll become like them. Now, the very next verse Proverbs 26, 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. I love how these are back to back. It's not like they, they're you know, <clears throat> two verses that are kind of buried in different parts of Proverbs. Back to back. Do not answer a fool. Answer a fool. Which one is it? Now, you might, from time to time, hear people say something like this. The Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Now that sounds really great. But my question to those folks is this, how do you answer a fool? And do you not go to church when you have a spot on your skin? And do you not eat bacon? And do you stone your children when they're disobedient? And do you kiss someone when you show up at church and greet them? And I could go on and on. There's all these different things that we follow or don't follow, do or don't do, depending on how we read the Bible. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Sounds really nice, but the reality is none of us are able to do that, which is to say there is this vitally important task involved in Bible reading. It is the task of interpretation. And the truth is, no matter how literal we may want to be, we all interpret. Every time we read Scripture, we are interpreting. I want to give a couple of examples here. Think for just a minute about reading the Bible in English. Breaking news, the Bible was not written in English. Now, many years ago, right after I graduated from seminary, I moved to Durango, Colorado with uh, some folks to help them plant a church. It was a great time, a wonderful adventure. Loved Durango, but, but we moved there. I spent the first couple of months just getting settled and getting to know people. And then um, as we started to build relationships, we had these things called um, information meetings where we would say, like, here's our, here's our idea. This is our vision for a new kind of church in Durango, and it was not really like a church gathering, but just more of like, here's what we want to do. There was this one woman who came to every single one of those meetings. And, and 
she came not because she was interested in our model or our vision or what we were trying to do or who we were trying to reach, any of that. The only reason she came is because she wanted to know what translation of the Bible we were going to use. And it became very clear that unless we use the King James version of the Bible, we were not going to be a legit church. And she actually used the phrase, I've heard people say something like this as a joke, kind of like a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing, but she said this in all seriousness about the King James Version of the Bible. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Uh, Jesus didn't speak English. He definitely didn't speak the King's English. He spoke Aramaic and also was probably knew some Greek um, as well. The Bible was not written in English, friends. It was written in Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled in. And so when we read the Eng an English translation of the Bible, we're already interpreting. Now, many of you are, are bilingual or even multilingual, so you understand what I'm saying here. You know that there are certain words or phrases that don't work in English and, and whatever the other languages that you speak. For example, I, you know, my wife and kids speak Spanish. They know Spanish idioms that don't translate very well to English and vice versa, right? There's things that, that, that make sense to us in English that don't translate to Spanish. And this is true of all different kinds of languages. In fact, we have a phrase for this, right? Lost in translation. Hebrews is a really interesting language you know, compared to Greek because it's very visual, and so one word can evoke multiple images and meanings depending on its context, which is why the King James Version says unicorns and the modern English translations say wild ox. Here's where we're going with all of this. Every act of translation is an act of interpretation. And every time we read the Bible, we are interpreting. Consciously and unconsciously, we're asking the questions, what does this mean? Why does the author say this? What is the author's intention? What does it mean for me in my context and situation? Why do we follow some rules like don't murder people, but then others uh, don't wear clothing made of mixed fabrics, which I'm currently in violation of right now. Like why do we follow some and not others? Why are some scriptures elevated and quoted often where others are rarely spoken of? It's because of interpretation. How we read how we read is every bit as important as the act of reading itself. So we're going to talk about this for just a moment, okay? Given the tricky nature of the Bible, the contradictory bits, the confusing bits, how do we go about interpreting the Bible? Now, the big fancy word here, the word of the day, if you will, is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. This is the study of interpretation. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably also heard people talk about the word exegesis. This is a critical reading of a particular text. And it means, exegesis means to read out from, as opposed to eisegesis, which is to read in to. And so if hermeneutics is the overall framework, right, how we think about all of Scripture, then exegesis is how we understand a particular passage within that framework. So hermeneutics, whole Bible, exegesis, Matthew 17, or whatever passage you are looking at. Now, these are words that are used a lot by pastors and theologians and scholars, but they are not limited to Bible conversations. We hear similar types of conversations about, say, the Constitution, right? When a new Supreme Court justice comes up, they want to know, like, how do you interpret this? Uh, you know, are you a literalist? Or, you know, this document that was written 250 years ago, 
how do we interpret what the, the writers of that document intended and how do, we, how do we apply that into our context today? We want to be, we want to be good interpreters, good exegetes, which is to say we want scripture to speak for itself, but we still need a hermeneutic, right? We need a key for our interpretation. And I think it's important to name this because if we don't name it, we'll, we'll come up with some other thing. There's always going to be a lens of interpretation. At Discovery, our framework is a hermeneutic of love, or another way of saying it is a hermeneutic of relationship. This comes from several of our core theological convictions that God is relationship, right? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in oneness, this community of perfect, self-giving, sacrificial love. That God is love, 1 John 4, 7 through 10. That God's mission in the world now, uh, post the fall, right? Post our sin and rebellion against God's good creation, His mission is to restore His creation, the broken relationships, The Old Testament word here is the word shalom. God wants to restore shalom. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, great summary of God's mission in the world. Then the greatest commandment, right, is to what? Is to love. Love God and love people. Mark 12, 28 to 34. And then this idea that love is our telos, right? Our ultimate aim, our purpose. Revelation 21 and 22. Because God is relationship and love, because God's mission is to restore relationships, because the greatest commandment is to love, because this is what we were meant for and where we end up. It only makes sense that our overarching hermeneutical principle is love. And so when we come to a text, there's all sorts of things that we may ask of a text, but we always want to ask the questions, how does this these verses, this story, how does it demonstrate God's love? How does it draw me into that love? Where is the good news in this story? How does this good news create a loving posture in my own heart? Does this conclusion or interpretation, does it draw me closer to love, into God's love, or does it, for some reason, it pull me away from God's love? Or, to use the words of Scripture itself, 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, if I give my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. We might add this, right? I, if I have the best exegesis and understanding of the text and I know my Greek and Hebrew words but do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. That whole section wraps up with this. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We want to have a hermeneutic, a lens of love and relationship. Now, there are different techniques that we can use to apply this hermeneutic of love. An old classic is the inductive method, great for exegesis. It's three simple steps. Observe, interpret, apply. Three basic questions for each of those steps. What does the text say? What does it mean? What does it mean for me? Now to add uh, or to sort of layer over that hermeneutical principle then, what does the text say? Observe. What does it mean? Interpret. Where is the good news in this story? 
and then apply. What does it mean for me? How does the good news of this story draw me into God's love and help me share that love with others? Are you with me? Another old classic, this is actually a really old classic technique, is called Lectio Divina, or Divine Reading. And there are different ways of engaging in this practice, both individually and communally, but there's essentially four steps. A very slow reading, or multiple slow readings of a short passage. Meditating then on a word or a phrase that sort of emerges in that reading. Is there some idea that kind of caught your attention? Praying through, God, why did you bring this? this word or phrase to me today in this moment. And then contemplating, which really is listening. God, what what do you want me to do or hear or respond to uh, in this reading? Now we're offering a short-term group this quarter for Lectio Divina, so you can go deeper into this particular technique. It's led by one of our favorites, Grace Cooper. It starts Monday, January 31st. There are still spots available, so if you want to be a part of that, there's plenty of time. Send Grace an email, she'll reserve you a spot, and you will have just a rich experience in Scripture. Everyone who's done a short-term group with Grace raves about it. Last but not least, there's our Discovery Reading Plan. It's the six-month overview of the big story of Scripture, and a kind of a new feature we've added this year is uh, in our chats, in the app, there's a whole chat channel just uh, dedicated towards processing that reading plan. So if you're doing that reading plan or if you want to join in the reading plan, they're only, I think, two weeks into it. Um, you can also join others in, in sort of talking about what you are seeing. How, are, how is the big story drawing you into God's love? You can talk about that together in that space. Now, as we wrap up, as we come in for a landing, I want us to end with this. We've seen some big fancy words like hermeneutics. We've talked about some of the the tricky parts of Scripture, and and how we want to go about interpreting all of that kind of stuff. But I don't want us to get lost in the technicalities, okay? So let's, let's end by remembering a couple of the big ideas, right? What's our vision for how we engage with Scripture? Do you remember Acts chapter 17? The Berean Jews who were of noble character, who received the message with eagerness, and then who examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's who we want to be. We want to be like the Berean Jews, daily, regularly, together, getting into Scripture, processing it, wrestling with it, together in community. Jesus' words in John chapter 6, these words, he says, these words of mine are spirit and life. May we not forget, may you not forget that these words are spirit and life. Let's not get lost in the weeds. Let's remember these words are spirit and life. And let's also remember <clears throat> that the good news that this Bible communicates to us is not that God so loved the world that He gave us a book. <laughs> no, God so loved the world that He gave us His Son, a person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. This person who who Scripture refers to in many different ways, but one of the ways he's referred to is as the Word. If we want to have a picture of God, if we want to have a clear picture of God and a clear picture of God's love, we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. So here's how I want us to end. Wherever you are right now, I want you to either, you know, imagine if you have the ability to pause the video, you know, turn all the lights off, Uh, in the room that you are in. But I want you to imagine, at least in your mind, 
a dark, a dark place, a dark room. And I want to just read through a couple of, uh, a couple of things that speak to, again, the why, the power of Scripture. So maybe uh, wherever, you're, wherever you are right now, you're watching this, close your eyes with me as I read over this and as we prepare to take communion together. Right, right this very simple, beautiful meal that reminds us of God's love for us. That he sent his son Jesus to die in our place that we might have life and have it abundantly. So close your eyes as I read through this. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up this conversation on Scripture, we are so grateful to be in this moment in history where we have incredible access to your word, your word which is a light, right? a light for our feet, a lamp for our path, and that this light has come into the world demonstrated most clearly in your son, Jesus, and the light has overcome the darkness. God, thank you for this good news. Father, I just pray over our community here in this moment, God, that, that we would be a church, we would be a family that regularly opens the scriptures together, that wrestles with it, that questions it, that examines it, that, that talks about it, that processes it, that revels in it, that finds joy in your words that are spirit and life. May we, may we be people who are shaped by your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for tuning in. Remember, next week, no in-person or digital gatherings. It's Serve Sunday, Serve Weekend. Sign up to serve and be a part of uh, what's going to be a really fun time blessing our community. As we go out again, uh, I just want to go out with those words of Jesus. These words of mine, these words of Jesus are spirit and life. As we read scripture together and wrestle with all that it means, may we find in this process words that are spirit and life. Grace and peace, friends.